intros means it's time for Dueling Prospect Mavens here at Fangraphs Audio. And today, if you can believe it, we have three Dueling Prospect Mavens. As Eric Manning, Brian Smith, and Mark Hewlett all join us for a roundtable discussion in which we look at an article that Brian Smith has recently contributed to Fangraphs. In that article, entitled The Next Step, Brian asked the question, are we valuing prospects in the right way? Should we look at their peak years? Or should we look at their value to the teams that control them for the time being? Each of our panelists weighs in and looks to ask the sorts of questions that we might need to in order to understand this interesting contribution player evaluation. Please join us for this next 30 or so minutes on Fangraphs Audio. edition of Fangraphs Audio. Today we have our crack squad of prospect mavens. Uh, joining me is Brian Smith. He's contributed to SI, BA, BP, and a whole bunch of different acronymed publications. Hello, Brian Smith. How are you? Hey, Carson. What's going on? Uh, I'm on a podcast, and so are you. That's what's going on. Um, we have, in addition, a, a gentleman who uh, has been our house prospect maven for a couple years now. Uh, he's also the editor of Rotographs. His name is Mark Hewlett. How's it going, Carson? It's going well. Coming to us from uh, from Canada, the uh, gold medal hockey champions. That's right. Yeah, I can I can hear the joy in your voice. I'm a little more uh, thrilled about the uh, curling gold, actually. <laughs> okay, that's the that's second ha- half of the pod material. I think <laughs> we'll get to the curling later. We'll do some curling prospecting. Sounds good. And uh, last but definitely not least is a gentleman who was the owner-operator of Future Redbirds, now uh, works for, writes for Play a Hard Nine. His name is Eric Manning. Eric, hi. Hey, Carson. What's what's up? Uh, not, not too much. Just having fun. Just having fun. Um, the reason we're all gathered here today, um, except for the fact that we enjoy it, is uh, to use a piece that uh, Mr. Brian Smith uh, posted, I guess it was towards the end of last week, is the next step. The next step. And in this piece... Uh, Brian, you you raised some really interesting questions. Um, I think that I would probably do a a bad job of summarizing the article, but the basic idea is you're looking at what what we might mean to do by looking at the future of prospect analysis. I'm going to hand it over to you, though, if you might summarize or maybe, you know, summarize the major questions from that article. Yeah, sure. Um, Sort of the jumping off point for me was, thinking about the way we do prospect analysis now, it's concerned with looking at a guy and what he might turn into, what his peak might be, how his career is going to look. You know, you look back and you think Barry Bonds is probably number one prospect of the last 25 years concerning considering what he did. But then you talk to Pirates fans and they don't really care about what he did in San Francisco. All that matters to them are the years he had in Pittsburgh and then the fact that he left them. So with that thinking... I sort of wondered aloud, why do we look at a player's career? Why are we concerned with a player's peak? Instead, we should be concerned with what he might do in his team-controlled seasons when he actually provides a discount to the teams. Brian, do you think that, and I invite you to speculate wildly here, do you think that, I mean, do, is there a reason why historically uh, prospect um, analyzers have looked at what a player will be at his peak? You know, is it just is it really just inertia now that we keep doing it like that? I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we love records and we love to think about who's going to be the best at something, and that 
and who's going to hit the most home runs. And when you see a prospect, you wonder where he's going to fit in terms of all the players that came before him. And I think it works for some readers that are interested in that, and I think there's plenty of publications that provide that service. But if we want to think about it in terms of how these players are valued as commodities within major league organizations, I don't think these teams are concerned about what's going to happen in year nine and year ten. I think they're concerned about what's going to happen in years one through six. Yeah. Now, Mark, you you know you've made it your business to to produce some pretty great uh, top ten lists this off season uh, for the thirty MLB organizations. Uh, you did. Uh, you took on a project last year. It wasn't, I think, uh, quite as ambitious. But you were also looking at prospects then. I'm sort of curious, especially now that you've gone through and done top ten lists for each of the organizations. You know, what is it that you feel like maybe uh, you're providing now, or you're trying to provide that people may not find elsewhere? Uh, that's sort of part one. And part two of that question is, where would you like to go? With the prospect lists, you know, uh, what are you know what are your sort of hopes with it, and and feel free to sort of uh, to dream wildly about that. Okay, uh, so I guess the, the the answer to the first question uh, would be um, that you know, with my hopes for the top ten lists and, and my goal for the top ten lists would be to uh, look at the best prospects in the in each club's organization, obviously, um, and take a more statistical uh, bent to it than some of the other um, publications do. Um, Baseball America is probably the best known, um, and they have they weigh their their ratings very heavily on on what the scouts say and on a heavy dose of projection. Um, you get some some pretty high rankings for um, prospects. Uh, recent draft picks that have maybe four innings in pro ball um, and you have high rankings for prospects with a uh, you know a walk rate that uh, that I could probably equal if I uh, grabbed the bat and walked up to the plate and is that all based on like the very peak of their upside is that what they're looking at yeah they're they're relying very heavily on on what they could become in in ten years or five years it is any sort of from your experience is any sort of like a bust percentage, so you know the percentage of a bust. Is that included in there, or are they really ranking them in terms of peak upside, without looking at their chances of being a bust? I think they they recognize the bust potential more in the chats that they do than in the write ups that they do. Okay, and so now, so now back to your top ten list. You're looking for more of a statistical bent. I'm I'm weighing yeah statistics a little more heavily. Um, obviously, just based on on who I write for. Um, and my background. Um, I mean, I take the, the scouting into into effect as well, but um, I try not to dream quite as much on the player's potential and, and try to weigh a little bit more heavily on exactly what what they're actually doing in the field and at the plate or on the mound, um, which I think has value. Um, now, have you sort of, you know, it, this thing that uh, Brian brought up in, in his Next Step article, has that something that's occurred to you before? Or is, I mean, as far as you know, is this something that Brian has maybe articulated for the first time, even if it's occurred to people, uh, but it hasn't been necessarily fully formed? It's definitely something that I've toyed, the, the basic idea with, I've toyed around with it. Um, I haven't really explored it too much. Um, 
I've kind of spent the last five years, I guess, covering prospects, thinking more along the lines of um, there's definitely more that we can do, but not really having a, a, a strong direction. And I think uh, Brian's idea is a, a great jumping-off point for all of us to, to start looking at. Yeah, now, uh, Eric Manning, I think that you and Brian uh, were doing a, a little bit of corresponding on this topic, maybe behind the scenes, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have caught wind of that. What was the exact nature of the stuff that you guys were trying to hash out in terms of, um, you know, sort of coming to, you know, even just dreaming up ways of being able to rank a prospect uh, you know, in terms of his worth to his current team and how he would perform in his in his team controlled years, as opposed to this kind of uh, peak upside sort of uh, analysis. Uh, yeah, Carson. One of the ways that we talked about doing that is just kind of looking at the prospect in terms of what they might produce. You know, in a win above replacement kind of number, trying to put more of a, a number on them, and that's just from based upon what kind of what Brian has already been doing with comparing them with players with similar performance in the minor leagues as well as you know what are some of the uh, players who what are some of the same characteristics that players that were successful um, had and uh, you know what were some of the characteristics of players who who maybe busted more that that you know prospect people who like to rank prospects you know were high on but for you know different reasons they busted and uh I'll let Brian kind of fill you in more of this because he's done a little more studying on this than I have. But, um, you know, my kind of hunch was that up-the-middle guys, you know, with good defense that maybe aren't the greatest hitters but can really, you know, field, uh, maybe somebody like Alcides Escobar might be a little underrated, whereas, you know, just these guys that are bat guys but can't really uh, field their position all that well um, would probably be overrated. And, uh, you know, I, we haven't really got into the, you know, deep side of the study yet. And um, we also kind of tossed back and forth the idea of possibly, um, you know, opening, opening this up to fans, you know, kind of like we do with the uh, Tango does with the fan scouting report and we do with the fan projections at Fangraphs is just maybe, you know, what are the questions that we need to be asking fans and, and uh, you know, what are the questions that we don't really want to ask fans and, and how do we temper you know, enthusiasm for, you know, I, I like the Cardinals, so I might tend to overrate a Cardinal prospect versus, you know, an, another fan of another team. So these are just kind of a few of the ideas that we sort of hashed back and forth with each other. We didn't come with up with anything really firm, but I just, when I read the article, I don't know how Brian thought it was going to go over, but I, I thought it was a really great idea because as, as somebody who's written for Future Redbirds, a website that's prospect-centric. It's just basically about the team's prospects. This is something that I've kind of been churning about in my head for a long time, and I'm glad somebody's really expressed it the way he did. So yeah, no, okay. So Brian Smith, we have, you know, we've we've all seen, you know, if if someone's listening to the Fangraphs podcast, uh, there's a chance that they're, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sure that they have many things going on in their life, but they might also be a little bit of a baseball nerd. Let's just be honest about that. And so they've probably, you know, they're probably aware of baseball players, you know, below the major league level. You know, they've they probably, you know, if not, if not throughout the league, they're probably at least aware of the top prospects in their, uh, you know, their own favorite team's organization. And then also probably like, you know, the Jason Haywards or the Madison Bumgarners, the big names. We've all seen prospect lists, is my point. But how do you envision 
you know, and you don't have to, you don't have to give me, you know, like brass tacks here. It doesn't have to be exact. But how do you envision the, a prospect list looking, you know, if we're able to answer these questions, you know, and, and we don't necessarily know what all the questions are yet. But what do you, what to you is like the best prospect uh, capsule? You know, like what do you want to know about this player? Okay, well, one thing that scouts, some scouts do at the bottom of their scouting report is something called OFP, which is, well, I think they do it mostly for hitters. It's offensive future potential, and they put a number between 20 and 80 that's sort of the average of the five tools. But what I'm thinking is instead of that number, which doesn't mean a lot in context, we should think about it in terms of war and think about it in terms of, you know, how they might project as major league players and how they might be valued as major league players. Got a guy today on the site, I looked at Jesus Montero, and you think about him in a, in a couple different contexts. What if he becomes a designated hitter? What if he stays behind the plate? What if he develops his power into 40 home run power? And what if it stays around 20 home runs? There's a lot of different outcomes, and if we put a war number on all of these, average them together, give you an idea of what the likelihood he's going to hit these different things are, then you have a lot better idea of what this player might become than just saying he's the fifth best prospect in the league. Okay, now, uh, now I want to go back to something you said there, and you brought up a couple interesting points that, you know, I want to make sure that we're able to go over it so all our listeners feel like they're on board. You mentioned the 2080 um, ranking, uh, which is the system, you know, I and I and I somewhat familiar with this is the system that scouts typically evaluate uh, each of a player's tools on. Could you just give us like, you know, just a quick quick and dirty rundown on, you know, what does a 20 look like, a 50 look like, an 80 look like? And then and and it, well, then I'll have some follow-up questions for you, but could you just give a brief recap of that? Sure. Uh, the 20 to 80 scheme, I believe, was created by Branch Rickey, and he uh, he made it so that 50 is the average, and then you have different standard deviations from that. So an 80 defensive center fielder, say, would be Mike Cameron, a guy that could probably save 30 runs a, a year with the glove in certain seasons. A 20 would be how Carson Sestouli would look in center field. I don't know if you've ever seen me play center. It sounds like you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might be underselling you a little bit. I got long levers, Brian Smith. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so then you're looking you're looking at guys that are hopefully somewhere between fifty and eighty that play in the major leagues. And when you hear a guy has a plus tool, that would mean that a player is sixty out of eighty. And a plus plus tool, like say Steven Strasburg's fastball, would be somewhere above seventy on the twenty to eighty scale. Okay, so if we, if we start talking about translating this into runs, I mean, I guess that's that's a big project, right? But you know, what are what are the first questions do you think we need to ask, Brian? Well, one thing we've talked about doing is a community scouting thing where maybe we can ask, we can throw a guy up there like Mike Stanton. So then we ask all the community what Mike Stanton is on a twenty to eighty scale, and we average that out, and we average everyone that we ask about, and we sort of get an idea of where these guys rank relative to each other. And then hopefully from there we can put a run value on it and use that to help us when we create a guy's potential war. Yeah, okay. Now, Eric Manning, uh, I think I think that maybe you tried to do this in its, uh, in its infant stages, as it were, uh, maybe with Jason Castro. I'm sort of curious as to how that ex- – if you could just maybe you know summarize briefly what you did – and then, sure. um, and then also sort of talk about you know 
how the answers came in and, and, and how you how you felt about them? Well, I mean, basically I did the simplest basic thing that I could do, and I just looked up his scouting report um, uh, from just different different outlets, you know, the normal thing, Baseball America, Keith Law, um, you know, those kind of people. And uh, basically I just kind of from their input just did the 20 to 80 scale on his different tools, um, hit, you know, hitting for power, his defense, running and all that. And basically what most people expect out of Jason Castro, who's the uh, top prospect on the Astros system, he's a catcher, um, is they don't really expect him to be, you know, they expect him to be slightly above average in the hitting department as far as hitting for batting average. Um, his power is a little bit below average. Um, his defense, I actually went on Twitter and just asked some people what they thought about his defense, and I got, you know, wide variations giving him a, either a 70 grade or uh, as low as a 55 grade, so I settled on a 60. And, and just in my mind, just kind of talking with Brian, we, we decided a, six, uh, a 60 catcher would probably be worth an additional five runs on defense. And so basically from there, I just kind of, okay, well, if he's slightly below average, I looked at some of the league averages of what slightly below average power looks like, what slightly you know above average batting average is, and uh, just kind of put together like what I would think a typical season would be. And, um, you know... Basically, it was something I, I don't really have the slash lines in my head exactly, but it's basically he was. I figured he'd be about nine or ten runs below average offensively, but you have the whole defensive, you know, adjustment with catchers, which is obviously the biggest defensive adjustment for any player because you know it's such a hard position to play, and that's you know the offensive threshold is pretty low for a catcher for that reason. And then I factored in, you know, his defense, and I think I came up with, like, you know, he's probably a two, two-and-a-half win above replacement player um, realistically. And I think what the reason why Castro was drafted so high, you know, he was 10th overall in the 2007th draft. It wasn't because he was the toolsiest or, or hottest player. It was just because scouts really felt that he, this was a guy with low bust potential, maybe not a real high ceiling, but, you know, high high floor. So, that's kind of where I came up with that is I figured he's got a pretty decent shot to, to, to achieve this. And if all he is is, you know, slightly above average or if he's below average as a hitter, but he's good at everything else, then, you know, you're talking about a two and a half, maybe three win player, you know, at a, at a very premium position. So, well, Hey, Mark, listen, I'm, I'm sort of curious about this. One of the things that, uh, that uh, Mr. Manning was just discussing there was opening up, you know, to the fans, uh, to you know, uh, their ability to evaluate a prospect, you know, maybe uh, say something like defense on a, on the twenty to eighty scale, and then to convert that to runs. Now, you're someone who spends a lot of your time thinking about different prospects, right? And uh, now you're a pretty humble guy, but you also probably realize that the amount of time it it takes to to, to sort of uh, develop these opinions about different prospects. Is this something that you think could work in the hands of fans? You know, I mean, I could see Tango's project, or you know, the, we have the fan projections here at Fangraphs. I could see that working because most people who go to Fangraphs have a pretty strong hold on, uh, you know, the players that are out there in the majors. 
But the minors is a totally different thing. The games tend not to be televised. You know, maybe you could see, you know, if you live in Memphis, you can go see the Memphis Redbirds. Or if you live here in Portland, Oregon, you can go see the Beavers. And you see other teams come through. But, you know, how should we feel about the fans being uh, projecting things for minor league prospects who, you know, they probably haven't laid eyes on? It's definitely a concern when it comes to asking fans to, to rate prospects. Um, but at the same time, there, there's definitely some value that could come from it, um, especially these days with the Internet, the way it is with YouTube, and even with MinorLeagueBaseball.com, they are a lot of games, and you can listen to a lot of almost all the games on the radio. So if you, you're really a fan of Minor League Baseball, you can get the knowledge. And I think when it comes right down to it, the fans that are really going to um, in, put input forward are the ones that um, are really the big fans. You might have the the general person throw out an idea. You know, your uh, your big Yankees fans or your big Pirates fans are going to have their favorite players, and they really want to put something out there. But if this is going to be a long term project, I think you're going to you're going to have a lot of the homers fall away, and you're going to have sort of the hardcore, more knowledgeable fans that are going to continue to follow a project like this. So that's where the value would really come out of it. Okay. Well, so let's let's maybe start looking. We talked about Jason Castro a little bit, but maybe let's look at a couple of actual names and to start looking at them, you know, in a preliminary way at least, looking at them from this perspective as to how much they might be worth to their teams as opposed to what we might call a traditional uh, prospect analysis, which would be merely to consider their peak potential. I think a good place to start would be with Jesus Montero. Uh, Brian Smith, you wrote an article today about Jesus Montero, uh, considering in particular his value at catcher versus his value, uh, um, you know, if he's forced to go to essentially DH. Because um, I should state post haste that Jesus Montero is a prospect in the Yankees organization. Um, Mark Teixeira, of course, is locked up for some time at first base, so DH is really the only place that Montero could probably wind up if he, if it's not catcher. Now, obviously, I'm not certain to say you caught the wrath of some Yankees fans, but certainly there were Yankees fans who were high on Montero but didn't necessarily see the sort of hit his value would take to the Yankees if he was forced to move off catcher. Um, some of this might involve summarizing your article from earlier today, but can you talk about Montero's value to the Yankees, especially... Uh, in light of a positional change. Yeah, I mean, when we when we think about WAR as we calculated on the site, we use four factors: it's batting runs above average, fielding runs above average, runs above replacement, and then we use a positional adjustment. So one of the four factors we use to calculate WAR is a player's position. So when you tell me that Jesus Montero might not be good enough defensively to stick a catcher and then he can't go to first base, and the only availability for him is designated hitter, then you've potentially taken three wins off his projection because we have a minus 17.5 run adjustment for designated hitters and a plus 12.5 for catchers. So you've taken off a whole lot of value from Montero just by moving him to the DH spot. So even if he hits very well, even if he hits, as I said in the article, at a 370 WOBA, then you're looking at a guy who's a three-war player and that's just not what Yankees fans are envisioning when they dream and think of Frank Thomas behind the plate or what Carlos Delgado could have become if he didn't move. 
Now, let me just get, uh, you know, uh, with regard to Jesus Montero, if I could get just a quick response from each of you. I'll go uh, to each of you individually. Just very quick. Jesus Montero's uh, chances of sticking a catcher. Brian, I'll start with you. Jesus Montero's chances of sticking a catcher. Uh, 25%. 25%. Eric Manning, what do you say? Uh, everything I've read, I'd give him, like, maybe... Ten percent. Ten percent. Okay, it's not even yeah. as good. And Mark Hewlett, uh, what what are your what are you thinking about Jesus Montero? I'll be a little more optimistic, and I'll say about forty uh, percent. I mean, if Mike Piazza can stay behind the the dish as long as he did, uh, I see some hope for Montero. Well, that's another thing too, and uh, I know that having you know uh, Matt Clausen is is a smarter man than I, but I know that he did some work. Uh, I believe it was driveline me- mechanics, but you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. He did some work on catcher defense. And right. I'm remembering now that even the lowest of the low, like once you get down to Mike Napoli territory, we're still talking about you know not even negative 10 runs below average in terms of fielding. So, well, Hewlett, I'll ask you this more from a prospect uh, point of view. I mean, is, is it really – it's really in the best interest of the Yankees, isn't it, to keep him at catcher? Yeah, it it definitely is. I mean, obviously we we've sort of gone on and on, and it, it's true. Like his best value, hands down, is behind the plate, um, because the sort of the ceiling at catcher is so much lower than other positions. Right. Okay. Uh, so that's Jesus Montero, and he he provides an interesting uh, example because he'd be going from catcher, uh, which you know gives him an adjustment of plus twelve point five offensively because uh, you know. As Brian mentioned it, as uh, as Mr. Manning mentioned before, the offensive threshold for catcher is just so low. He'd be going from plus 12.5 to minus 17.5. Another guy uh, that would I think is, and this is kind of a hot off the press type stuff right here, that we might consider in light of this is Justin Upton, who's sort of one of these uh, uber prospects. Uh, I mean, he's not a prospect anymore. Obviously, he's not a he's not a rookie, but he has, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and you guys. Please yell at me if I'm wrong. I think he's got about four years of team control left. He just signed, if my sources are correct, and uh, there's some pretty heady sources, so I'm sure they are, a uh, six-year, $51 million deal, which, uh, you know, by my calculations, you know, comes out to, uh, you know, somewhere between eight and nine million per year. I don't know if there are any sort of incentives beyond that. Uh, Brian, let's start with you. Just your thoughts on this deal, especially looking at it from from this angle of, you know, trying to lock up a player or, you know, trying to think of a player's um, value to his team as opposed to his uh, his peak upside. Yeah, I think the Diamondbacks look at Justin Upton and they see when he becomes a free agent, he's going to be priced out of what they can afford in their market, and he's probably going to head east to a big market team. So what they did is they offered him money up front for the next few years, more than he would have projected to make, to buy out one of those free agent years, and they just got who used to be the top prospect in baseball for another year. So it has incredible value to have a prospect in your organization because you might get seven, eight years out of him like the Diamondbacks are projecting to get, and he was a five-war player last year. So they're getting a ton of value, and they're not going to pay that much money compared to what he might get when he enters free agency in six years. Hey Eric, I'm I'm interested. Uh, you know, I could think of other players, you know, for whom organizations have done this recently. You know, the one who probably comes uh, to mind the quickest is Evan Longoria, who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dave Cameron ranked uh, number one last year in terms of 
value to his team, uh, you know, between uh, years left and, uh, you know, costs of the contract versus value that he'd be worth versus, you know, potential trade value. How does this, how does the Upton deal for you compare to the Evan Longoria deal? Um, it's not quite, you know, as good of a deal. I, I don't have the numbers on Longoria's deal, but I know in front of me, but I know it was like, I think there were some kind of sabermetrically inclined folks who kind of wondered, like, what is his agent doing? Is he asleep at the wheel? I mean, it was just this crazy good deal where Upton, I mean, what is that? An average annual value of $8 million for a $5 million, you know, or excuse me, a five war player probably per year. And, and he's so young and he's already, you know, producing these huge numbers. And so, I think it's not quite as good just off the top of my head, but I think it's still a great, great deal for Arizona. And, uh, you know, I, I just definitely, uh, you know, big, big thumbs up for me. Does it, does anyone have those numbers off the top of their head? The uh, Longoria deal? I'm, I'll pull up Cots here real quick. Yeah, here. yeah, go for it. Now, Hewlett, just uh, your your general thoughts on the Upton deal. That's, uh, you know, six, six more years of him. That's two years that he would have... Uh, been able, uh, eligible for free agency. How does that strike you? Do you do you have any uh, sort of dissenting opinions from these guys? Do you want to be maybe even more ebullient about the uh, about the deal? I like the deal. Um, I'm a little gun shy of these big contracts just because I'm sitting here in Canada watching Vernon Wells play center field uh, and getting paid a, a whole lot of money to do it, and uh, not not real happy about it. Uh, not to say that uh, Justin Upton's suddenly gonna, you know, go in the tank, but you know his brother was projecting to be a pretty good player too, and uh, he's kind of uh, tapered off a bit. Um, so there's always there's always a risk when you when you do a big contract like that. Um, you know, Blue Sky, it's it's a great deal for Arizona, uh, but with a, a smaller market team, it can also go south pretty quick. Now I'm, I'm sort of curious about another thing here. Uh, oh, and uh, uh, I'm finding out, uh, out of the heavens, I'm pulling a number. It was uh, six years, seventeen point five million dollars, and then club options yeah. for fourteen to sixteen. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of value right there. That's a lot of value, and I, and, I, and that's always a kind of a fun article. I think that maybe Dave Cameron might be preparing something like that again. Uh, we can uh, we can always expect quality from that guy. Now, I, you know, so another thing, and, and uh, let's make this the last question we uh, go around with. But I think that you know it'll be a, another sort of interesting case study in terms of um, applying this idea, this idea of you know maybe a new way of analyzing prospects and uh, in, in finding some sort of practical application for it. Um, on a lot of prospect lists this year, we see one of two guys uh, at the top. Um, and you know, typically in you know one order or the other, we see uh, Steven Strasburg in the Nationals organization and Jason Hayward in the Atlanta Braves organization. Uh, so those are sort of the traditionally uh, minded, um, you know, uh, top prospects in the league. What I'm going to ask each of you guys is, is if we look at it in terms of value to team, are guys like Steven Strasburg and Jason Hayward, are those two guys just because of their immense talent, are they still one two or you know two one? At the top of your lists, and who might be another prospect? You know, and again, I, I'm not expecting exact numbers here, but who might be another prospect that you sort of foresee as being a little bit more value, a little bit more valued than we necessarily consider him to be? Maybe it's a name we haven't really seen at the top of the lists, but a guy who is going to provide some value to his club 
even though he doesn't necessarily have that you know that crazy ceiling. So Brian, let's start with you again. Strasburg and Hayward are they still at the top? And then you know one or two guys do you see as maybe having more value if we look at it just in terms of like a team controlled WAR type situation? Well, I think what I mean we've mostly talked about hitters today. So when we when we think about it in terms of pitchers and Steven Strasburg, it's interesting because the way we evaluate pitchers is generally using the statistics that make up FIP. We think about strikeout rates, walk rates, and home run rates. So the way we've been doing it with pitchers seems right. So I think that Steven Strasburg absolutely belongs there. We know he's going to strike out a batter in inning. He's got great control. He doesn't give up a lot of home runs. He'll be fantastic if he stays healthy. Jason Hayward is a plus defensive outfielder. He's not going to have a bad defensive adjustment or a fielding number, and he's going to hit like crazy. I see no reason why they shouldn't be one too. And as far as your your outside outside of the box guy, the one name that's coming to me is Tony Sanchez, who everyone hated in the uh, top 15 of the draft last year for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But he plays a pretty good catcher, and he's going to be a major league average hitter. When you look at that in terms of what it might be as value for the Pittsburgh Pirates, he could really be a three three and a half WAR player. And that puts him in the discussion of some guys that we've been talking about as top 25 prospects. So I think you begin to see the value of a position like catcher in terms of... Uh, Increasing because of the uh, positional adjustment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, Mark, Mark, let's go to you now. Uh, Strasburg, Hayward, and then uh, you know maybe a guy that, that we don't we wouldn't necessarily expect to hear. Yeah, I'll I'll say Hayward definitely. Uh, he's he's number one for me. Um, I know uh, you know a lot of people like Strasburg first. Uh, I'll go with Hayward. Uh, he's an everyday player. I think he just has massive massive potential. Um, and I think Strasburg, you know, he he's got great value for Washington too. Um, I think I, I wrote a couple days ago that uh, he has the potential right now to be better than, uh, you know, the the other five guys projecting to be in the starting rotation. And he, <laughs> is he, that he saying a lot? Though? I mean, is that saying a lot, Mark? <laughs> well, in some sense, no. But in some sense, yeah. I mean, this is a guy that hasn't really thrown a pro pitch unless you count the Arizona Fall League. Right. So that in itself is pretty impressive. Um, now, you know, he was given a, a pretty hefty contract right off the bat, so that potentially impacts his value a bit, um, but not a whole lot considering uh, where his ceiling is. And then for, I guess, uh, other prospects to consider, um, we have the number two pick uh, in the 09 draft, uh, Dustin Ackley for the, the Mariners. Um, I think the big question with him is where he's going to end up. Uh, because of you know some some injury issues uh, in his junior year in college, he he played first base. Uh, he definitely value wise uh, isn't a great player for that position. Um, if he ends up in center field, I think he has that that really helps his value. And so even there, if he ends there, up, at, is there a possibility he could end up at center field? That's you know right now the talk is that he's going to be center field or even maybe second base. Um, so for his his style of uh, offense, I think either of those positions would be best. Um, so if he does end up at one of those two, I think he could be, end up being a huge, huge value for the Seattle Mariners. Um, and then beyond that, just one other guy to think about would maybe be Desmond Jennings in, uh, in Tampa Bay. Center fielder, a lot of speed, good bat, developing power. Um, so I think he could have a lot of uh, 
a lot of value for the the race as well. Right, and and I'll just say too that in terms of Dustin Ackley, I'm looking at the positional adjustments here, and it's plus 2.5 for second base or center field, whereas it's you know for first base it's negative uh, 12.5. So that's a win and a half uh, swing again, which sort of just illustrates the importance of positional adjustments when we're considering these prospects. Eric Manning, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you uh, close us out here. You know, if do you have any sort of dissenting opinions on Strasburg and Hayward in terms of them being one, two, even looking at uh, just you know value to the to the team control, the, the club in control of the player, and then uh, additionally a player that we maybe whose name we wouldn't expect, but who who presents a lot of value uh, to his club uh, based on WAR. Sure. Um, well, I have no problem with Jason Hayward being number one. Um, I mean, he looks like a fabulous player. As far as Strasburg being number two, he's pretty much the most hyped prospect that we've heard about in ages, it seems like. But the thing is with these pitchers is that they just have such a high bust rate because of, of um, you know, injuries and just there's so many different things with pitchers and things that can go wrong. And so... I think Mark uh, took one of mine, Desmond Jennings. I think I, I might even be inclined to rank him a little bit higher because, you know, of his defense and his ability to uh, just all-around play. and uh, Or even maybe maybe even Carlos Santana, who's got a terrific bat and can stick at catcher. And so he's on the Indians. And so those are a couple of guys um, digging really deep, somebody who – might provide a lot of value who, who might be a little underrated is uh, Peter Burjos. I hope I'm not butchering his name. He's in the Angels system. He's a center fielder. And if you go to his uh, minor league splits page and look at his uh, total zone, it's just unbelievable. He's a plus plus defender. He's in the Franklin Gutierrez. Oh, I got a little excited there. Gutierrez. <laughs> Watch out, it's your Latino but, side. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Eric yeah. Manino or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, anyway, but he's got just crazy uh, numbers in the scouting reports, you know, agree that he's just an awesome defensive center fielder. You know, he's maybe not as much with a bat, but, you know, he's, you know, decent enough and he's made some strides in that area, but uh, he can really, you know, go get the ball. And so Peter Burjos, just remember that name there. Just yeah, that's I'd right. And, and that will be in my head uh, all day. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think that's the only way uh, the only way to leave this. But hey, listen, guys, that was a that was a uh, really great conversation. I really appreciate um, all those thoughts. And and I, uh, you know, I'm myself. Um, I'm probably not the smartest analyst of any of the guys at Fangraphs, but um, it's definitely given me some stuff to think about just in terms of how I'll be looking at, uh, you know, and maybe questioning some of those prospect lists. I see out there, and I invite our readers uh, and listeners to do the same. So I want to thank uh, Eric Manning. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, sir. You're uh, no problem. Anytime, Carson. Okay, well, thank you. Mr. Mark Hewlett, thank you very much for joining us all the way from the, the frozen north. That's right, Carson. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll get to curling next time. I apologize. We didn't have enough time in this week's podcast. And uh, Brian Smith, thank you for uh, giving us an excellent jumping-off point today. All right. Thanks, Carson. All right. That has been Fangraphs Audio's Prospect Maven Talk. It wasn't quite a duel because we had three of them. I don't know if, uh, if there's a uh, if there's a word for three people in a duel. That's what this was. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, tune in next time.
once again that's been our dueling prospect mavens or three dueling prospect mavens I know it sounds impossible but uh, Fangraphs is just insane enough to do it uh, I want to thank those fellows again for joining us here Brian Smith for writing the article that made the entire thing possible and finally I would be remiss not to remind our listeners about Fangraphs second opinion that's the 2010 second opinion that's Fangraphs first foray into the publishing world you can get that at Fangraphs.com for the delectable price of $7.95. Thank you for joining us once again, and please do listen as we air another podcast this Friday with Mr. Matthew Carruth and Matt Clausen. Thank you very much for listening.